Well, this morning, uh, we launch our brand new summer teaching series entitled How to Wonder, the story of Elijah and Elisha on attempting and accepting miracles. Now, if you're not familiar with these Old Testament prophets, you're not sure about their stories, that's okay. You're going to get your fill this summer on these nutty characters and their crazy tales. But there's a few things we need to lay out, a little bit of groundwork before we hop into these stories. First, when we read stories of crazy prophets and insane miracles, those stories aren't included in Scripture for shock value. It's not a, you know, it's not like, um, like clickbait or that, or that kind of thing. It's much more important than that, much more impressive. Because every story that we're going to cover from Elijah to Elisha has two underlying questions that are being answered every single time. And these are questions that you and I continue to wrestle with today, and here they are. Is God Lord? Meaning, does God have this world covered? Does God know what God is doing with this world? And the second question is, is God faithful? Or does God have me covered? Will I have everything that I need? And so these stories that we're about to hop into today and for the duration of the summer answer those same two questions over and over again. And the answers come by way of the miraculous. And we probably need to talk a little bit about miracles too, handle them properly, perhaps grab them by the appropriate handle. We got to remember that miracles, um, these are stories uh, that we read and understand, that they're not always explained, right? You just sort of get dropped, you, you absorb it, but there's no details. There's no explanation as to how it happened or how it works, which bothers me because I want to know how it works, right? I would love a miracle life hack. Someone figure that out, put it on TikTok for me, or perhaps an instructional video on, on YouTube telling me how miracles work. Let, let me just give you a quick side story on that. My wife and I are having discussions with our son who's about to turn 19. And the discussions are around, you have no idea how to wash your clothes, make a meal, look after yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So as parents, in a moment, we, th we, we think we have a, a little bit of power, right? So listen, kid, you can't move out. You can't do those things. You don't know how to do any of that. And we had that conversation this week, and my son's answer was along these lines. Yeah, I don't really need you. I've got YouTube. I can figure that out. YouTube will teach me how to wash my clothes and make food, right? And in a way, we look at the scriptures, we see these amazing stories, and we want that how-to. Give me the instructions. But we're not going to get it. Instead, what the scriptures offer us is an opportunity to be amazed, to recognize that inexplicable things happened and are happening in ordinary life, in real time. So then we can say that these stories will never give us a full explanation on how everything works, and that's okay because that's not the point. Instead, these stories exist to testify to the wonder of it all. One author I read this week described miracles like this, an abiding astonishment, or we could say they remind us or they open us up to the supernatural, or in the words of Jesus, all things are possible with God. So then, keep in mind as we move forward that miracles are never in and about themselves. That's not the point. Instead, the point is to point 
beyond themselves towards the miracle maker. So this morning, we're going to drop into a set of stories that begin in 1 Kings chapter 17. And along the way, if you're okay with it, I'm going to share with you a bit about the journey that I've been on the last three months and the miraculous encounters that I have experienced as I sat with those exact same questions. Is God Lord? Is God faithful? Is God taking care of this world? And is God taking care of me? And my hope is that what I'm about to share with you here this morning will help answer those very same questions for you. Sound like a plan? Good? You ready? Should we do this? All right, here we go. So, and then this happened. Elijah, the Tishbite, from among the settlers of Gilead, confronted Ahab. As surely as God lives, the God of Israel before whom I stand in obedient service, the next years are going to see a total drought. Not a drop of dew or rain unless I say otherwise. And let's just stop right there in the very first verse. Already with the first verse of chapter 17, we're beginning to see the miraculous. And I'm not even going to read the follow-up to this. Maybe you know the story. Elijah's on the run, and then he is fed by ravens in a river. That is a cool story, but I don't care about that story today because I think there's much more important things to be found in this opening, and let me tell you why. These words from the mouth of Elijah They're fighting words. These are words of confrontation. These words are subversive, meaning they're meant to pull the rug out from under the oppressive powers and structures that be. So in short, when Elijah says these kinds of things, right off the bat, he is confronting the major god of the day. The major god of the day, his name was Baal. He's a fertility god. And one of the things on his job description is to make sure that it rains so that the crops grow and everyone can eat. And that's kind of a big deal when you live in a time where there's no irrigation systems and no indoor plumbing. But not only that, this confrontation is also aimed at the king of the time. His name was Ahab. He was not a good king at all. And part of his job description was to make sure that the gods did their job, coax the gods to make it rain so everyone could be looked after. You can think of a king sort of like a prime minister or a president today. They're responsible for the economy, right? Once the economy gets going, then he just makes it rain. You get it? You see what I did there? Because Baal was rain, this was rain. No, you didn't catch that. Okay, let me try it again then, old timers. It was the job of the king to make sure that his people would live long and prosper. Does that, does that make better sense? Yes, you got that. Cool. But now, in a true show of strength and power, God, Yahweh, he turns off the taps. So what happens then? This makes the king powerless, and this makes the king unreliable which is a not-so-great re-election strategy campaign. And remember, with that in mind, with all this going on, remember those two foundational questions I mentioned just a moment ago. First, is God Lord? Does God run the world? So if that's the question, this first verse begins to answer it right away and say, well, quite obviously, who else is able to turn off the clouds? But what about the second question? Is God faithful? Will God look after me? And if you ask me, sometimes that seems like more of a feat, more of a miracle 
than turning off the clouds. Because, because when it comes to our own security, when it comes to our own safety, our own survival, what we tend to do as human beings is sort of bunker down and make sure that everything is looked after and safe for us. This is a good idea to put a chair up here. This is fantastic. Why didn't I think of this earlier? Can I welcome you into my space for a little bit? Like just literally, this is the chair and the side table and everything else from my living room. Why are you looking at me so weird? You don't bring your furniture uh, from home to work ever? Well, I do. I want to bring you into my world a little bit to see where I've literally been sitting the last three months. And P.S., is this sort of a rite of passage for old men? You just have a chair in the room and it's your chair and nobody else should sit there? It is, right? Kind of. I get it. So this is my space. And when it comes to my space, I love to have all the things that I love that make me feel good and secure and happy near to me. So I love this chair. I love this little table. And I got a whole stack of books because books are my friends. I've got some, you know, books on like design and art at the bottom. I've got some really neat books on like cooking and like entertaining. This one's probably one of my favorites. I always buy used when I can because uh, I love the inscription. It says, happy Hanukkah and happy entertaining. Love, Rosalind and Sal, December 1966. Rosalind and Sal, thank you for this. It's been a real winner. And I move up. And I've got some fiction. I'm trying to read fiction. I don't understand fiction. It doesn't make sense to me, but, but I'm, I'm trying. I got this neat book on Russian criminal tattoo police files. It is fascinating. These guys are, there's like a whole language just like tattooed on their bodies. I got something about, you know, reading people's body language. And then on top, on top is where I keep with the cream of the crop. This is the stuff that I'm like into right now. So I got this little one on like poetry. I got this guy here. This is Thomas Merton, who's kind of been like my pastor the last two or three years. He's great. I got this fantastic devotional that the staff gave to me before my sabbatical. And then I got a weird book about marketing and advertising, which interests me as well. But close to that, I keep my favorite mug. I've had this mug for like 15 years or so. So like every day that I've been home the last 15 years, it's been this mug. And it sits on this coaster which I may have borrowed from a restaurant in Portland where I was with a friend. We had such a great time. It was fantastic, and I wanted to remember that moment. I've got an ashtray back there that I keep guitar picks in because when I sit here, there's usually a guitar close by. See? Yeah, there's one right there. And then I keep this too. So my son's got this thing with me where he gives me musical instruments for Christmas, and this is the one he gave me this year. I forget what this is called, but it makes, like, the funnest sounds. Like, you can make a low sound, like... Can you hear that? Right? But guys, check this out. Check it out. Check it out. What's that? Right? It can make those cool sounds. So maybe, David, maybe I could join the band uh, after this is all done. But yeah, I like, to keep, I like to keep all my stuff safe. I like to keep it close to me. I like to keep it around me because this is my spot, right? This is my spot. This is where I feel safe. This is where I feel mostly like me. So I spent a lot of time curating my environment, making sure that everything I want is totally within reach and nothing out of place, everything where I want it to be, everything put in place to make me feel safe until things start to change a little bit. So I'm on sabbatical for three months. And then you know how COVID goes. Everything shuts down. 
So every plan and everything that I had hoped for and wanted, you know, it mostly dissolved. And then it sort of hit me that it felt like God was starting to corner me and say, you can't go anywhere. You're stuck. You just got to stop. Just stop. And I kid you not, one week goes by, two, three, four, and by the fifth or sixth week, I'm just sitting in this chair, and I feel like I'm glued to it. I feel empty. I got nothing going on in my mind or my heart. I feel tired. The only energy I have is to get out of bed and sit in this chair and then figure out what dinner is and make that before everybody gets home. I spend an hour just staring out the window blankly and not sure what to do next. In the opening weeks of my sabbatical, that's what I felt like. And then those same questions that Elijah was dealing with in 1 Kings 17 started to hit me. Is God faithful? Like, does he really have me? Is, is he looking after me? Why, why do I feel this way? Is God Lord? Is he in charge of this world? How much longer are we going to be in this trouble? And as I sat here and reflected on those questions, things began to shift. Things began to move. And around that time, I listened to a fantastic interview uh, with a guy named Wynton Marsalis. Wynton Marsalis is a world-famous musician, performer, conductor, and educator. He was the first person, actually, to win a Grammy Award in both jazz and classical in the exact same year. Dude is a legend. And in that interview, he said something that hit me like a ton of bricks as I sat here. And the line was this. If you don't share power, it's because you're afraid of losing power. Jazz is the agency of sharing power. I like jazz music. But when I heard this line, it reminded me of something else that I was familiar with. And then it began to blossom in me a little bit. It really hit me. What if... What if God's love is the grand agency of sharing power? Think about it. From the very beginning of the human story, God says to you and me, what's mine is yours. Freely I give. You do the same, which is an exact direct contrast to the way the rest of the world works. Now, hold that in your mind as we go back to the story here. Think of King Ahab, the not-so-good king. There is no way that guy is going to relinquish any of his power, even when things are going bad. Why? Because that's what keeps him important. That's what keeps him relevant. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if I, if I want to be like Ahab. So what about me and my story? What have I done? What am I doing with the power that has been shared with me? What if I turn that on you? What are you doing with the power that's been shared with you? Do we only use our power to create the most perfectly curated, safe space for ourselves? Where we just make sure that we are looked after? Do we only surround ourselves with the things that we love and make us feel safe, things that we can control? Will we only use our power to control our personal environments? Or is our power meant for greater things? You see, for some of us, God's got to force them to stop and then freeze us to a chair for 10, 12, 
15 straight days. To think about how God is so full of love that God sees us as an extension of himself. A God who shares all he has with us. A God who doesn't care if you perform. A God who doesn't care if you produce. A God who has always taken care of your needs, whether you've realized it or not. even if that means for us that we come to that realization. But perhaps we need to begin to separate ourselves from all our homemade safety nets and perhaps venture to places that we've never been before. And that's exactly what happened next to Elijah. God instructs Elijah to distance himself even further from all his normal life support systems and to live in vulnerability, and to be deeply at risk. But why? Because that's where true power lies. The story continues. Eventually, the brook dried up because of the drought. And then God spoke to him, that's Elijah, get up and go to Zarephath in Sidon and live there. I've instructed a woman who lives there, a widow, to feed you. Okay, okay, let's stop, stop, stop here again, just one verse at a time. If you're familiar with this part of Elijah's story, what happens next is another miracle. Miraculously, a woman whose cupboards were once bare are suddenly full, and she has enough to feed herself, her son, in this waylaying prophet. But again, I don't care about that part of the story for today, because I think there's way more in these verses that set up the whole scene. Let's start with the location, Sidon. Does anyone know where Sidon is except for Randy? Anyone but Randy know where Sidon is? Oh, I don't know where it is either, but I do know this, is that it's a region outside of Israel. So for you and I who are reading this, again, this one little verse is so packed. This is a cue. This is a statement. This is another confrontation. To say that Elijah has been directed to go to Sidon would be like saying, Elijah moved to a location that was outside of the power and jurisdiction of the king. Meaning, the dude's out of reach. And the king and the powers that be have no control over him. But then notice who he's supposed to go see. He's supposed to see a widow. A widow is meant to feed Elijah in a drought. Think about that detail again. Listen to it with ancient ears. Widows in that time are the definition of being powerless and vulnerable. They have no support. They have no identity in that culture. They have no protection. They have no access to the public sphere. And they are easy targets. Why? Because there is no one to come to their rescue. And oh, on top of all of that, more than likely, they're poor. So sit with that verse. Sit with that detail for just a moment. Let's not rush by it. Think about it. God sends Elijah to get help from someone who in that world is helpless. She has zero power to speak of. 
but, but, but. Think about where this story actually lands in the fuller context of the book of Kings. Now, you've got to think about the book of Kings sort of like a history book, right? It's all about important people doing important and powerful things. It's all about important men doing important and powerful things, right? And that's what the whole book is about. It's the history of the kings of Israel. But in the middle of this history lesson, we get this abrupt interruption. Now, pretend you're back in grade 8 Canadian history class. And your teacher gives you an assignment to memorize the order of all the Canadian prime ministers and their stories. But then think about it for a second. You're in that class and you're going through all these stories and there's all these names that you recognize. And then all of a sudden, you get this story? An unexpected story of a, of a nameless widow, a woman, a nobody who is uncredentialed, disadvantaged, hopeless, and again, powerless? Why drop this story in the middle of this history textbook? Are they pulling on our heartstrings? Is it a bit of a sob story? No. Or are we actually getting an indication of where true power lies? Because remember, powerful men doing powerful and important things the whole time, the whole time, the whole time. And all of a sudden we get this story and you feel like it's a dip. But what we're actually getting is a bit of a bump. Because we are talking about a person, people, who are outside of the reach and control of the kings, outside of normal structures. We are talking about people. We are talking about power where power is not expected to be. I know that's a weird concept to hold on to, but allow me to literally illustrate it for you with what is turning into one of my favorite Twitter feeds of all time. It is titled, Places Cat Shouldn't Be. So track with me on this one. Cat, no, you do not belong in the computer tower. Cat, no, 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 you can't be on the ceiling. Okay, let's stop this one here for a second. This one is disturbing to me. Can someone please tell me why grandmas in the 70s and maybe 80s thought it was a good idea to crochet a chicken and eggs and then put it onto the dining room table? And then perhaps have like a matching like crocheted cover for your Kleenex box on top of your toilet tank. Does anyone know why people were doing this? I don't. And Kat uh, wants no part of it either. A couple more here. This one is sort of lying in wait. Very good. Let's call this one to go. And I'm going to give you one more. It's a short story and four acts. See if you can follow along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love the last one. I think that one's turned into a meme, right? Like, no, don't. You get the idea, right? There are places cat shouldn't be. But you know what? I think that's only human opinion. Because a cat doesn't care about what you think about where he or she should be. So then. It's really weird when you feel like you're in a place that you shouldn't be. It's a strange feeling when you've worked so hard to curate everything, when you try to keep everything you love and people you know really close to you, 
it's hard to hold on to all of that and see the future when all of a sudden the future becomes out of reach. I want everything to be in reach. I want to see what's coming down the pipe so when it gets close to me, I can grab it. I want to control things. I like to plan. I like to have things in order. I love it when you think I like to plan and have things in order. But what happens when you just can't see the future anymore? What happens when the things that were so close are now just out of your reach? In a way, that's partly what happened to me sitting in this chair for the last three months. Pastor's a bit of a weird job. It's a great job. I love it. I love it. But it's weird. So I'm going to choose my words carefully here. They're, they're, they're not going to fit, but you'll get it. So I've built a career, and again, that's a dumb word to use when talking about the vocation of pastoring, but I built a career on knowing what to do next, being able to see that, getting it ready, organizing some people, and let's be on task together. But now, if I was going to be completely honest with you, I have no idea what's coming next. I can't see it anymore. It's foggy to me. And I hate that feeling. Because for me personally, I like to know what's coming. You know why? So I can control it. So I can handle it. But beyond that, I love problems. I love problems. I love challenges. When things are broken and on fire, that's my favorite place to be. Partly because I want to come in and I want to help and make things right. But partly, if I'm being honest with you, you know, there's a bit of a hero complex in there. Oh, look at me. I'm going to do this. Everyone's going to love me if I do a great job. And there I am, sitting with those feelings in this chair. Things that came super easy that were once within reach, and now I can't even get my foot on it anymore. Now, think about that in terms of leading a church like Lakeview. And again, I'm going to be using terms here that don't fully grab it all, but you'll get it. You know, part of this job is to pastor, part of it is to lead, part of it is to manage staff, part of it is to work with good people to make sure that all the pieces are in place. And I get that. But I've also recognized, and I've seen it happen in churches before, where sometimes there are leaders who stay beyond their expiry date. And that might not be an intentional bad move, but it happens. And I recognize that in me. I recognize that as the future seems so out of reach, as it seems foggy, as I deal with some of my own things that are going, as God is really talking to me, as I allow myself to be open to him, I'm recognizing that a church like this is so good, is so beautiful, is so grand, is so exceptional in many ways, that this kind of a church needs the kind of a leader for the next season, the next chapter, who's all in who can jump in, is ready, full of energy, especially coming out of COVID. This is going to be a big task that we are on today. It's not all on the leadership. It's on us as a church, but that's going to be a big deal. And as I sat in this chair for three months, I recognized that wasn't me. I just couldn't. I don't have the energy. I can't see the future like I used to. The drive isn't there anymore, and that's a signal to me. It's happened before, that a chapter is coming to a close. 
And you know what? I'm okay with that. At least I am now. And that's why I can quit the best job I've ever had without having another one to go to. And maybe, like me, you felt some of those same things the last of the while. Well, you can't see what's coming up. The future is foggy for you. You can't control the things you used to be able to control. And that puts us in a weird place. But if we allow ourselves to sit in that place for a little bit, maybe to let go of control, to recognize where true power actually lies, then maybe things could change for us. Let me turn your attention back to the story here really quickly here. Elijah and his imposition, holy imposition on this widow. Later in the story, he's going to ask her for bread. But he only asked her for enough bread for today. Not enough bread for today and tomorrow. Not enough bread for a three to five year plan. Nope. Enough bread for just today. And remember, we're in Sidon, outside of the reach of the normal power structures and power brokers. We're in God's dominion where widows are important, where widows have a place, where widows are named and known, and where penniless prophets have power. You see, under the jurisdiction of this world, you would never leave an amazing job with great benefits and great vacation and great people doing great, inspiring things. You would never leave that to go to nothing. Because how would you take care of yourself? How would you make sure that you had enough bread for you and your family? Why in the world would you risk yourselves on something that you can't control, let alone manage? And listen, just to make sure here, I am not a hero. If there's a hero in this story, it's my wife for a million reasons, including this one. Imagine your spouse says, sorry, I'm going to quit. Can you sort of cover things for the next little bit? I'm not sure how this is going to work out. So I'm not courageous. I'm not a hero. I'm not strong. I'll tell you this, that the one little thread I'm holding on to, this thing I'm thinking better yet believe, is that True power and true security are located outside of my control, outside of my reach, outside of the governing structures of this world. Remember again those two underlining questions. Is God Lord? Is God faithful? I believe the answer to those questions are yes and yes. And so because of that, cat can go to all the places cat shouldn't be. So take courage, my feline friends, when the powers that be tell you that you can't risk, oh, you can't challenge, that you can't let things out of your control. Well, that might be true in the jurisdiction of this world, but you and me, as followers of Jesus, we live outside of those power structures. So if you didn't know it already, you're a cat. You're a cat. And you can go wherever you please. And that kind of thinking just might take you to some new places. 
And that's what I did for Elijah in the last part of this episode this morning. Later on, the woman's son became sick. The sickness took a turn for the worse, and then he stopped breathing. The woman said to Elijah, why did you ever show up here in the first place? A holy man barging in, exposing my sins, and killing my son. And of course, if you know the rest of this story, Elijah, filled with God's shared power, raises this boy from the dead, and they live happily ever after. But again, I don't care about that part of the story here this morning, because I think there's much more worth examining in this mother's response to the fact that her son has stopped breathing. And maybe you've been like that mom before, right? You encountered trouble. You encounter things that are outside of your control and your power. And you start laying out the whys. Why did you come here, prophet? Why did you expose me? Why did you kill my son? Those seem like fair questions. We can empathize with this woman. But why is it for you and I, kind of like her, why is it that when we hit tragedy or trouble or we're put in places of discomfort, our first response is often to bite back at God? Why? 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 Is it because we doubt that God is Lord or that God is faithful? Or could it be because we're in a new place? We're in a new place that we don't quite recognize, which means we might not quite recognize what God is up to, what God is like in these situations. And perhaps we don't even recognize the power of God that is available to us in this new and unfamiliar place. I can't tell you how many times I've muttered wise from this chair. Why? Why, God? Why? 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 But now, three, four months out, I'm starting to wonder if it's because I'm just learning new names for God in the new places that I find myself in. And I want to bring you into that just as we sort of round the corner on this sermon. When I head out, headed out for sabbatical, the staff gave me this, like, fantastic gift basket. Cheeses, olives, cold cuts, like, straight to my Mediterranean heart in two ways, in two ways. And I loved it. And in that too was also a stack of books. And on that stack, like I told you, was this devotional guide that I wouldn't have bought for myself, but it was in the kit and I gave it a try. And I've been praying along with these prayers the last three or four months. And I feel that God has really spoken to me through them. And there's one particular prayer that I want to share with you. It's kind of poetic. And uh, it's based on the story of Hagar, You remember her from the Old Testament? Sort of like Elijah, on the run, not sure what to do. And she encounters God in a new and powerful way, at least new to her. Let me read this to you, or perhaps pray it over you. It's called Prayer for a New Name. God of Hagar. When Hagar was exiled in the desert, she met you. And she gave you a name. The Living One who sees me. We have walked far and have seen many things. And now, because of what we have seen, because of where we are going, because of where we are, we give this new name now. 
We do not destroy past names because they have brought us here. We celebrate the new name that will bring us on because you are known by many names, names which bring us on. And to me, when I first read that prayer, and have read it multiple times afterwards, it hit a space. Or perhaps it awoke an old set of feelings that I had. I want to share them with you this morning. I want to know new names for God when I'm in a new place and in a new situation. When I'm outside the normal boundaries and power structures, And when new trouble comes my way, I don't want my first response to be a snapping, why, why, why? Instead, I want my arms to be open in the same shape, but this time an openness to wonder. A posture that says, God, give me a new name that I can use so that I can know you and so that I can trust you in new ways, at least new to me. God, I want to be amazed. God, I want to see the parts of you that I haven't seen yet. God, I want to experience you in ways that I have not yet experienced you. God, I'm ready. I think. God, teach me a new name. And here's the thing, friends. When we orient ourselves in this way, the word we usually use to describe this posture is one of worship. A pastor friend of mine is fond of saying that worship is an orientation, and I think he's exactly right. So check this out. My house is actually positioned exactly like this auditorium. So I am facing the same direction this chair faces all the time. And you know what? I like this direction. Hi, Theo. How's it going, buddy? Yeah, I can see you. You can see me. You're good. Awesome. This is my direction. In this direction, I know what things look like. I feel safe in this direction. I like this direction. But if I turn things a few degrees this way, I'm like, whoa, where are we now? How did we get here? I've never seen this before. What's happening? Hey, God, are you here? Are you here in this new direction too? Oh, hey, hey, what's going on over here? Well, I've never seen this before. God, you're here too? God, what are you doing over here? God, what... Oh my gosh, guys, look at this view right here. I've never seen this view. Fantastic. God, what are you doing over here? God, what are you up to? This way, this way, or this way. God, what should we call that over there? How do we know you from over here? But let me be clear on something. This isn't to say that God is a moving target that you have to track down. No, that's not true. Instead, what this is is an awakening to an understanding that God can be seen and known from every direction. There is no place that God is not. In fact, you could maybe say that we are living in God right now. God is so big, so big, that no matter where you look, God is. God is in the old directions but God is also in the new ones. So my prayer of late from this chair has been, God, orient me 
point me in new directions and give me enough bread for just today. I want bread for tomorrow and for next week. I want to know where the bread is coming from 10 years from now. But I think what God really wants to teach me and perhaps you is to trust him for bread for today. Because, my friends, I want to wonder again. I want to be amazed again. And if that means I need to learn new names in which to see and understand God, then I'm in. So I say, God, show me. God, teach me. God, help me move outside of my directions, the ones I love and are so used to, the ones I've created, the ones that I have submitted to. God, point my life in brand new directions, even if they're scary, even if I don't know where they point. God, do that. Point me in new directions so I can see you and discover you anew. Because I don't want to be limited by the things that I feel make me safe. I don't want to be limited by the things that I can control. God, I don't want to limit you to what I like or to the direction I've been or to the things I've seen previously. I don't want my knowledge of you, God, to be limited by the experiences that I've had in the past. I want to be in all the places a cat shouldn't be. Or in this case, I want to be in all the places a 46-year-old pastor shouldn't be. So my prayer for you, my friends, this morning is this, is that you would have absolutely no clue how miracles work or function. But instead, you would be in a posture of awe and wonder, remembering that the point of the miracle is not just about the miracle. The point of the miracle is to point you towards the miracle maker. And so may you orient yourselves in new directions, directions that are outside of your norm. May your new experiences of God cause you to discover new names for God. And may the power that God has shared with you testify to God's care for this world and to God's faithfulness. Are you with me? Let me stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for being everywhere. Thank you that no matter what direction we turn, you've already been there. Thank you when tragedy strikes. Yeah, you're there. When good times, yep, you're there. So God, I pray for my friends this morning that we would have the courage to share in your power, not to hoard it, not to use it to simply keep ourselves looked after, but we would share it because, oh, it is that power of your love, God, that changes everything. So help us to share it, God. God, for those of us who feel stuck, we can't move. There are certain places cat can be. We've played by those rules. God, will you remind us that we're living in Sudan? We're out of reach of the normal power structures. We live by a different code. So I pray for my friends this morning that you would fill them with faith, that you would fill them with courage, that you would fill them with trust so that they can risk on your behalf. And God, remind us 
you will always give us enough bread for today. So for those out there who are like me, who want to control it and perhaps build a bread factory, God, remind us that's not our job. It's yours. And God, finally, I pray that you would introduce us to new names, new names that describe you, help us to understand who you are and what you're up to. And God, when we're in those places, help us not to say, why, 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 but instead orient ourselves in worship in an openness that says, God, whatever you want. Okay, let's do it. So God, give us what we need as we head into this new week. Be with our friends who can't be here today. We trust you for all these things because we know that you are Lord. This is your world. And we know that you are faithful, which means we belong to you. In your good and holy name we pray. Amen. Love God. Love others. Tell his story. If you like, go out, grab a bite to eat somewhere, and come back and celebrate Nancy just after the second service. If not, have a fantastic week and maybe take some of your visiting out to the apron. That'd be fantastic. Bye, everybody. Thank you.